Good morning once again. Welcome everyone, Zoomers and those of you who are here in person. Last week, I talked about fixed views and we are exploring, we are exploring precepts. Is there a problem? I'm trying to mute everybody. Okay. Uh, we have been exploring the precepts once again, um, and we're exploring uh, the precepts in a much more specific way, if called engaged Buddhist precepts. And the word engagement is about how these precepts manifest in our everyday lives. And so sometimes the formulation of the precepts uh, is, is very general, like no lying, no stealing, no uh, in, in intoxicants, uh, uh, no killing. So those are very general, but the way they appear in our everyday lives uh, manifest in, in many specific ways. And though there isn't a precept addressing fixed views as such, holding, holding on to a, a particular view uh, or a perspective uh, or a belief, um, even though that isn't uh, addressed specifically, it's a very, very much a part of our everyday lives because we come up against fixed views and we hold fixed views, even though we don't think we do. We may not be fully aware that we are holding a fixed view. So today I want to um, uh, speak about the consequences, some of the consequences of holding fixed views. And one of the consequences of holding fixed views on our part, as well as the part of others, is conflict. Conflict is something that isn't addressed directly in the precepts, but it is something that we face continuously. Inner conflicts and outer conflicts, conflicts within ourselves and conflicts with others. And Certainly today in, in the world and in our country, uh, we're faced with conflicts based on fixed views, based on differences of perspective, differences of understandings, differences of life experience. And it would be wonderful if this person who had a certain view of the world based on his or her education and life experience and uh, values, that person could hold that view and we hold this view and you hold that view and that's just fine. We're just all holding our separate views. Somehow that doesn't seem to happen too often that we fundamentally accept and more than tolerate, but just accept the fact that there are many, many legitimate views that differ. And we can just 
actually celebrate that, celebrate the diversity of views. But somehow those, that diversity turns into conflict that we don't seem to be able to um, celebrate, to accept another's view. And thus we begin to engage in some kind of adversarial relationship. Fighting, it's called, <laughs> you know, we're in conflict. So what, what is it that leads, leads into this, these conflicts? Well, one of the things that may lead into these conflicts is the way we hold our views. The fact that we don't, we can't let go of them, that somehow we are attached to our views. And the view of the other is not simply accepted as another legitimate way of seeing things, but is wrong. So we have this worldly dharma called right and wrong, that it is somehow not possible to have two rights. I'm right and you're right. It's what we call a zero sum game. If I'm right, you must be wrong. And there is tension built between my rightness and your wrongness. But the fact of the matter is that other people also think they're right and you're wrong. So that's where things get messy. If you had the sense I'm right and you're wrong and the other person just said, yeah, I'm wrong, you're right. But that doesn't often happen. When you say you're wrong, they say, no, I'm right and you're wrong. So we have, we have what we call a, a war, uh, fighting, both internally and externally. So there is a, a lo lovely image that I think expresses this situation quite nicely. And it's an image of a group of porcupines. This group of porcupines um, is living in a very cold, probably the coldest time of year in their, their particular location. And they decide, well, in order to stay warm, we should gather together and keep each other warm. And so they decide, yeah, uh, let's get together, huddle together, and we <clears throat> this way we can uh, we can help one another. But of course, they're porcupines, and as they come together, they start pricking each other. No wounds, like little quills are sticking into, not, not 
big dramatic things, but just little irritations. And of course, the closer they get, the worse it gets. As we know that the people who were really close to us, the closer we get, the more prickles, <laughs> the more prickly we are, and the more we wound each other. We try to get close. I mean, and the people who are, you know, not so close to us, those porcupines, they don't bother us so much. But the ones who are huddling together with us, our families, our colleagues, our spouses, our friends, our children, our, those are the ones that closer, the closer, the more prickles. So this is inevitable, and we, we know this, because we all, we all have quills, um, and you can call them those fixed ideas, uh, those, those views, those opinions, those preferences, those values. And they are going to come into conflict in, you know, with others who have their own so our question today is how do we respond to conflict? How do you respond to conflict? Well, of course there are a whole spectrum of ways in which we respond to conflict. And I want to talk about three of those ways. Maybe you fit into one of these categories. And you've heard of the reactivity of people who they get stuck, they get stuck and they react. We react, it's them, it's us, we react. It's a reactive uh, uh, response. And they're often categorized in three major categories. You either fight, flight, or freeze. So fight, flight, it's a typical series of responses that people have to conflict. They actually, were, they actually are, um, they have their um, uh, analog in the three poisons in Buddhism, attachment, aversion, and ignorance. So we can say that the three poisons are also forms of reactivity to fight, flight, and freeze. So let's see. Um, Attachment, um, uh, when you're in a conflict, when somebody uh, uh, challenges you or has different views than you do, we can hold on, you know, just hold on tight, attach more 
to our view. Not, we, we're not giving an inch. <laughs> you know, we are going to fight to the death to, to defend our view. And we become quite adversarial and combative. And either you can see yourself in this, um, or you can see other people who are always in a state of combat. You know, they're, they're always ready to fight. Some, they're criticized or they're challenged and I'm gonna, you know, I'm, 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 in, I'm in this state of war all the time. I'm waiting for someone to challenge me so I can fight back. And, you know, sometimes that is appropriate. I'm saying it's not always appropriate. Of course, you know, if you're Penn State football, you know, you're gonna fight, <laughs> you know, you're gonna fight, you're gonna win. But in relationship, you know, again, worldly dharma, win or lose, I, I gotta win. I, I gotta win this. Uh, I gotta come out on top. And we live in a culture, unfortunately, which is be number one, be number one, win at all costs. And we have a former president who, who was a spokesman of that, you know, just no matter what you have to do, just fight and double down and win at all costs. And even though you may not see yourself as fitting in to that category, I bet you can find one or two cases in which you were prepared to fight to the death <laughs> to um, make sure that your value, your preference, your opinion, your way of seeing the world uh, was victorious. So that's this fight, that's attachment. And of course that results if you are one of these porcupines who was going to continue to push, the rest of the porcupines are going to flee from you. We, we do not like to be around people who are always fighting, who are always fighting with us. And we avoid, we avoid those people. Unless of course we're a fighter and <laughs> we, enjoy, we enjoy that combat, which is sometimes true. I sometimes call this when people fight, particularly people who know each other and care about each other, I call it negative intimacy, where when you're fighting, you actually feel close to a person. It's, it's a form of passion <laughs> fighting and when you're close to somebody, you know the buttons to push and it's, you have to know them pretty well. And so a lot of people who can't express uh, an intimacy and a care and a love uh, in a very beautiful and soft way, often resort to fighting in order to connect with one another. It's a, it's a very odd form of intimacy, but it's, it happens a lot. So 
flight. The person who, when challenged, always surrenders. I kind of, I'm a little bit like that. Why? Because you want to be liked. You don't want to fight. You want the other person to like you and to care about you. So you're not going to engage. You're, you're going to say, yeah, yeah, it's all right. You're right. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering. You kind of um, just, And of course, this is a form of withdrawal. Um, and it can seem like the person who doesn't want to make waves, you know, um, I don't want to get into this with you. So I'm just going to bow and uh, say you're right. And I'm going to adapt to any, you know, any challenge that I have, I'll just adapt. I'll just adapt and I'll say, okay, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. And that may seem like a very um, skillful and wholesome way of being to be so accommodating. Yeah, accommodating, just do. But it actually is a way of surrendering your integrity your authenticity. And it often, it often, uh, it often creates resentment. Because I've, I've given in, I've given in, I've given in, I've given in, and I'm not being true to my own position. And so you lose a sense of your own authenticity, of your own integrity, because you're constantly surrendering and adapting to everything that pushes, pushes you. And also, you know, such a, a person is also somebody you don't particularly want to engage with very much <laughs> because unless you do want to be right all the time, such a person is, you're just aware that they're, they're not really present to you. Uh, they, they're just waiting to surrender, to be inconsistent, uh, to just be a kind of, sometimes we say a doormat, <laughs> you know, you can just step all over them. Uh, and so that kind of relationship in which somebody is always giving in and just trying to get you to like them is not particularly um, helpful. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't resolve anything. It doesn't, it doesn't get you to the next stage of your relationship, which conflict can often do, which we'll talk about in a minute. The last one uh, is freezing or being in ignorance or denial. Um, this is where it's not just that a person is accommodating, but is, has actually disappeared. It's like, I'm not here, avoiding, 
just totally avoiding engagement. Some of us, as soon as we sense that there is conflict or um, some kind of distress in a relationship, we just disappear. We don't want to, we don't, we don't want to have anything to do with it. Um, and so we hide, we hide, we're not there. Uh, we, we can't find me because I want nothing to do with this situation. Oh, that's a kind of form of cowardice uh, in which you relinquish your agency, your, your power. Um, and you, you basically just disappear. And that isn't, that ultimately is, is not healthy and not wholesome and not skillful because a person and the world can't connect with you because you're just, where is, where is she? Where is he? He's not, he's not, I can't find that person. They're just hiding. Um, they're not responsive. It's not that they're accommodating. They're just not, they're frozen. <laughs> you know, they're just like, sometimes you'll be, you know, engaging with somebody and suddenly they just shut down. Where'd they go? I shut down. I just completely shut down. And, and that's so incredibly frustrating. They say, say something. <laughs> Frozen and paralyzed. Yeah. So those are, I'm sure we can come up with uh, other ways of responding to conflict. But one thing that all of these reactivity states have in common is that they all presuppose that conflict is bad. That if someone um, has a different view from you, that's criticizing you somehow. <laughs> that's somehow a criticism instead of just a different view. And also that the expression of different views somehow always has a self-reference. So when somebody says something that you don't agree with, what do we say? We take it personally. We take it personally because we live in a world where this ego is queen and king and everything refers to us. No matter what happens, it somehow refers to us. We, we take it personally. Actually, this reminds me of this wonderful story about the, um, the boat uh, fellow being in a, in a misty morning on a lake. And he's in a boat, uh, rowboat. And he's rowing and through the mist, he sees another boat 
seeming to come in his direction. And suddenly, you know, there's all kind of a tension building up in his body right away. Oh, that's coming toward me. And the mist starts clearing. And sure enough, that boat is headed toward his boat. And he grabs the oars and gets ready to deal with that. And yeah, the mist clears more and more. And indeed, that boat bangs into his boat. But there's nobody in the boat. Is nobody in that boat. That's, it just happens to have banged into his boat. But he thought it was coming toward him, that it was attacking him. That is generally the situation in our lives. Nobody is coming to attack you. <laughs> you know? But we see everything as all these boats are empty. They're just happenings. These views are just happenings. They have nothing to do with you. And as soon as he saw that the boat was empty, he just like melted. All of his tension, his anger, his frustration, his sense of being uh, uh, under siege by this boat disappeared. That's, that's can happen to us too when we realize what people are doing and what they're saying and what's happening has nothing to do with us. But we live in a state of self-referential activity constantly. And this is the function of our ego. So what is more skillful? What is a more skillful way to approach conflict? First of all, it's important for us to recognize that conflict is not something to run away from. Not to be considered bad. So we have to begin understanding that anything that happens in our lives is worth paying attention to. And conflict does happen in our lives. And it's worth our attention and our effort and our compassion and our wisdom. So it's worth, it, it's not something to be avoided. <laughs> That's, that is a hard thing to recognize because our tendency is to think that conflict's bad and we better avoid it or get it, you know, run from it, fight it, or freeze. So the first step is it's worth wor working with it. And then it has value. Conflict has real value as a, an opportunity to grow, to grow beyond differences to some sort of next step, next growing, growing beyond the differences and finding a resolution that is beyond the duality, that it is possible 
to find a way of growing beyond your differences, not even necessarily finding common ground. You can still have differences, but you can find a way to be with those differences beyond fighting. And from a Buddhist perspective, conflict can actually be a way of awakening. This is where no mud, no lotus. Conflict can be that mud out of which the lotus grows. But we have to nurture it because sometimes <laughs> lotuses do not grow out of the mud. All you have is mud. <laughs> you know? So not every muddy situation produces a lotus. It has to have the right uh, sort of as a chemist, you probably know, <laughs> it has to have the right uh, combinations of things. And that's where our practice comes in. That is where our practice comes in. And one of the core ways of skillfully handling conflict has to do with being silent pausing, stopping, and listening, which is what we do on our cushion. We stop. We stop for a while. We get in touch with ourselves. We, you know, what's going on here? I'm just going to be available. I'm going to listen. So to begin with, and this is something that the Quakers do a lot when, uh, uh, when there's turmoil in their group. Somebody calls for silence. They say, let's, let's have silence. And in that silence, you can get clear. You can get clear and not be swept up in re reactivity. Just react, react, react. But in that, you can call for a pause. Can we just stop for a moment? And can we just be quiet? Can we get in touch with what's really going on here? What my needs are, what, what I'm trying to defend here. Sometimes that pause can just be a minute and you can see that the boat is empty in that minute. Sometimes you need a week, like Thich Nhat Hanh says sometimes, if you have a fight with somebody like your spouse or lover, he, said, he, he will say things like, darling, <laughs> uh, can, we, can we make an appointment <laughs> next week <laughs> to have some tea <laughs> with each other? And we just have a week um, and then we will come back to this. Uh, in, in a week, sometimes it's a month, sometimes it's a year. I'll meet you next year <laughs> at, at Webster's and we'll have some tea. <laughs> we'll talk about this. Who knows how long it, it might take. But, but having that pause 
that stopping with an opportunity to get clear and to listen. Can we really listen to another person's view? Can we uh, suppose that there are other legitimate views besides our own <laughs> that are worth listening to? So, so, so often our listening is just talking to ourselves. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it means to us to listen. But, but can we actually let go of, uh, of that constant chatter and preparation to defend ourselves, to listen to, to somebody else's uh, need? And sometimes we, um, we cut people off because we can't listen to their distress we can't listen to the way they're, they're suffering. And we cut them off and give advice because we, can't, we can no longer sit with that discomfort in listening to some, somebody else. So we, we don't listen and we just give advice. And that's also a way of avoiding listening. And, and some, you know, you hear a lot, and I've said this to people myself, like, I don't want your advice. I just want you to listen to me. I just want you to hear, hear me. I, I don't want anything beyond that. And if you can listen in that open way, without interpreting, without seeing as it's personal, you know, they're saying something that is personal and that I have to react to, just to be there as we are on our cushion, just be there. So I want to, <clears throat> there are um, uh, a three affirmations which can guide us. Um, in this more skillful way of being in conflict. <clears throat> and of course, listening is a, um, is a very rich way of getting clear as to what you're feeling, listening to how the other person is feeling, and out of that clarity to begin to collaborate on how to resolve the conflict. So there's a, I think there's a book called Getting to Yes. It's, it's a kind of business, um, you know, how, how to negotiate um, and get to, to a win-win situation. I'd like to reframe that and speak about getting to us. Getting to us. Not me versus you, but can we do this together? Can we get to an us instead of a fight where one wins and the other loses the zero sum game? Can we move beyond that duality to an us, to an, a collaborative 
effort where we're not competing to win, but we are collaborating to resolve, to be responsive to one another. So um, this getting to us, Sangha, harmony, the first affirmation would be, I'm suffering and I want you to know it. You're engaged with somebody. Now you could be suffering because you're angry. You could be suffering because you're frustrated. You could be suffering because you're confused. You could be suffering because you're afraid. You could be suffering in all kinds of emotional ways. But to let the other person know, I am suffering in this situation. And I want you to know that. That's a, an act of generosity. That's an act of sharing. That's an act of authenticity. And it encourages another person to also be honest and open about their vulnerability, about the way in which they're suffering in this conflict. So I'm suffering and I want you to know it. Then I'm doing my best. An expression of good intentions, goodwill. I'm not here to, um, to fight you. I'm here to work with you. My intention is one of goodwill. I'm not here to, to, you know, to blame you or to hold you accountable for anything. I'm not here to blame. I'm here to, to do the best that we can. I'm here to work out the best solution that, that we can come to together. That again, a vulnerability, you know, it's, I'm here out of, care, love, compassion. I'm not here to bl be blaming. And lastly, please help. I need your help to resolve this. Let's work together. Let's work together on this. Uh, I need your help and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get to the next step, to get to the next stage to move beyond confrontation to a place of growth, to a place where we can both find something within each other to, to move beyond that duality. So this is, this is a way to make that mud nurture the lotus. To, to turn that mud into a source of nourishment, awakening, enlightenment. We have to work with that mud. We have all, all the time. It's there. And if we don't work with it, we drown in it. So this is our practice. There's another way of expressing this. No mud, no lotus. I keep the thorn to keep the rose. 
i keep the thorn to keep the rose.